an Audi original. Hello um, and thank you everyone for joining us for this panel about the Smokescreen podcast, uh, which many of us uh, on this panel have been working on for quite some time now. Um, I'm, I'm James Bull. I'm the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. I'm very pleased to be joined by some of the Smokescreen team. Uh, Victoria Hollingsworth, uh, who is a freelance investigative journalist and will be a very familiar voice to uh, many of you. Uh, Christy Giles, who is the uh, editor of the Smokescreen and Bureau's Global Health Project, and Tom Wright of Novel, uh, who produced the podcast. Uh, I'm also very pleased to be joined by Business' Alec Hogg, who has uh, done a weekly segment uh, on the podcast, uh, on his, uh, his show each week. Um, it's been quite an undertaking to do this story. It's hundreds of thousands of documents. It's been parts of this story have been told several times before, but sort of the whole beginning to end narrative and some of the twists along the way were very much new. Um, Victoria, you were sort of on this project for the longest. What kind of drew you to this story and made you think there was more to be told? Um, oh my gosh, where do I begin? I think, I think actually I started looking at this topic and then I, um, I remember calling, um, a friend who, uh, Richard Cookson, who turns out had, who had, who I know had done the British American tobacco investigation for Panorama previously said, Oh, I'm kind of looking at this. And, um, what do you think? And he's like, well, I'm looking at this as well. And, um, so we both started, uh, thinking, well, maybe. Maybe there's something really here that, that hasn't been uncovered before. And um, so I came to you, James, and I was like, I think uh, within these leaked documents, I think it was the the trigger was these leaked documents that had been um, put on, on Twitter uh, anonymously initially. And so we started sort of digging through those and reading around it and realizing that um, a lot had been covered about these leaks, but really in a, hey, there's some leaks that have just appeared online and you know, an article here or there, but nobody had really got them all together and really started to go through them. And what really interested me and why I brought it to you was nobody had really picked up on the UK angle and the fact that a lot of these uh, documents, you know, a lot of the documentation was relating to uh, the, you know, it'd been sort of sanctioned from the UK head office, you know, apparently so. So it's like, well, hang on, no one's really focused on this UK aspect and that's, you know, so relevant to us. Um, the fact that this act, all these activities were, were driven from the UK. So that was really what got me very interested because that hadn't been looked at before. So yeah, that's why I thought, I think this, I think there's gonna be something here if we just keep, keep on digging. And that's sort of the classic thing with any kind of corporate scandal, isn't it? People try and fix it to, oh, well, it's a few bad apples or it was just in that country. And, you know, a lot of what happened in South Africa with Belinda, with the network of spies, with that sort of thing was quite well known. But as you say, this did go right back to BAT head office. And, you know, for people who might not have got all the way through the podcast gasp or uh, uh, sort of coming to it from here, you know, what what was the sort of how how easily did it trace it back to the UK? Was it sort of 
one email one time or was there more threats? Yeah, well, that was the thing because I think the way it had been reported on in, in South Africa was was um, often through this, this sort of, um, you know, dramatic lens of this this uh, femme fatale character, this this Belinda um, spy, and 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 also very much focused around the relationship that she had had with uh, Johan van Lockenberg, um, who was you know running the investigation into the tobacco industry at the time, and the huge controversy around that, and the dramatic implications on the loss of uh, revenue to South Africa as a country. You know, huge story and massive importance. But I was interested in. Um, you know, the reason Belinda was so pivotal to us and our investigation beyond what was happening in South Africa was because, you know, that very first meeting that she had with BAT was with somebody from the UK. Um, you know, they met together and he he discussed, you know, how they were going to have this uh, relationship, how they were going to pay her in this, you know, fairly unorthodox way of, of untraceable, um, allegedly untraceable uh, travelex cards, which you know, it's, it's pretty unusual way to, to get information um, in a, in a you know, open, open way. So it was like, this seems a bit odd. And why the UK flying to South Africa and paying this central figure in these Travelex cards? So, you know, the link to, to the UK was not exactly like a rabbit warren of links. It was pretty direct. Um, you know, they weren't go, you know, although they had this separate private security company, which we can get onto in a moment, it was it was this sort of link between this central figure, Belinda, and these really senior figures in the UK head office. Um, and I was just like totally intrigued by that relationship and what on earth they were getting out of that. And, and uh, when we started to gather the documentation together, it, it was just phenomenal. Like we weren't having to make um, assumptions around this because we actually we actually had the emails we had you know the messages we had um, you know it was very UK head office couldn't deny that that this relationship existed you know they'd even written a letter confirming all the payments that they'd made to her so it was pretty wonderful really to to have all of this evidence fairly uh, early on into our into our investigation to go oh there's the direct link to the UK and very high up in BAT so you know we, as I say this we're really onto something here and nobody had really looked at it from that perspective like okay who is sending these emails who's paying in these travel cards um, so yeah it was you know the UK link was really um, obvious from early on. So um, there was sort of an, un an unusual problem with this investigation as well in that we almost sort of found ourselves with too many troves of documents and too much to look at, didn't we? Like, it yes. didn't really end with these Twitter documents. It, um, it, we, th there was just sort of, you know, one source, then another source, then another yeah. source, kind of go, hey, yeah. here's some things. It, it, I remember coming to you being like, somebody else has just promised some documents and I think, you know, somebody's going to send this thing, you know, and it was, we were getting them from lots of different areas, which is fantastic and brilliant for cross-referencing. But it was a bit, a bit like originally, um, nobody wanted to speak and it was quite difficult to get anybody to go on the record with us. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to share something with you. And I'm like, okay, maybe a couple of documents. Oh, God, I can't go through this. It's thousands. Absolutely. I mean, like, hundreds of thousands of documents, which is really unusual and also fairly impossible um, to, to, to go through. So 
I remember, um, I, I mean, I, I, I think at the time I was gathering all these documents together, uh, I watched this film, Dark Water, which is about that like, investigating, you know, corrupt practices. And, um, and, it's, uh, and he opens this door to the room where all his evidence is. And it's literally a large room full of boxes, uh, like just filling the room. And I just thought, oh my God, that's basically what we've got. But it's all like in a impossible, you know, we managed to get it in an, a, a searchable database in the end, which was just really wonderful and helped to cipher, you know, to get to go through them all. But, you know, if we'd have actually printed out every single bit of documentation we had, it, yeah, it would have definitely filled a huge room. <laughs> so fairly, yeah, fairly overwhelming at the beginning. I mean, and throughout, to be fair. It all looks like we had some kind of, uh issue with hoarding i think wouldn't we uh, <laughs> it might be healthy um i you know let's let's do a little plug for our friends at the university of bath there who were the ones who helped us out with the uh, search database but yes oh so gosh. essentially we got to this point where we knew a lot so we had a lot of documents and uh, and then tom this is more or less when uh, we dropped everything in your lap um how do you go about sort of changing something with a little bit of audio but not very much and endless reams of documentation into a podcast someone might listen to well um i think the very first hurdle was just understanding everything because you guys were coming to it with a huge amount of knowledge already having already been sifting through these documents and already being sort of knee deep into the story and i arrived with sort of zero uh prior knowledge of this story um, so Malcolm Reese was enormously helpful in very patiently and over a very long time explaining and then re-explaining it to me. Um, and then once we got our, our heads around that, the really key thing was finding people who are willing to talk to us. Because the problem with a podcast about documents is that documents can't speak. Um, so that then began a, began a really long search to find people who were, were willing to go on the record and were willing to share their stories. Um, and that was tricky. It really seemed like the South African tobacco scene was not a space where people were prepared to talk lightly. Um, so that's why we were really grateful for those, those who did and were willing to go on the record and share their stories with us. Um, so I think the really key thing for making the podcast was to move, to understand the evidence base of what we were working with and then to understand the stories of the characters we were speaking to and the stories that they were telling us and how to make that work over eight episodes. So it must have been a bit of a overfacing sort of first day where um, you sort of, where you got assigned to this project by, uh, by novel and then just sort of get and a huge barrage about kind of, you know, how South African private investigators operate, how, you know, how British American tobacco works, cooperation with law enforcement, um, you know, the role of JVL as the regulator and Belinda as quite a central character. Did you sort of, you know, find yourself going home and thinking, what on earth have I got into here? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, even at its, in the simplest version of just Belinda's story, it's an incredibly complicated thing to try and get your head around. The fact that somebody could be working for a group of tobacco manufacturers and actually secretly working for their rivals in a relationship that was facilitated by the state intelligence agency. 
I mean, just as a sentence, that's a, that's a big one to try and get your head around. Um, and so what I really tried to do was break it out into blocks. Um, so I would try to think about Belinda's story and about her, the, the kind of chronology of that. And also the different bits of material we had sort of laying out her story. Um, I think, you know, a really, really key document was the, the draft affidavit um, that she didn't sign. But that was a, a really key document, I think, for kind of understanding her perspective and her side of the story. And then cross-referencing that against what are our interviewees who sort of intersect with her stories at various different points um, were telling us about, about what had happened. Um, so I think the really key thing was breaking it down into more, more digestible chunks. So focusing on Belinda and then focusing on, on Francois and the FSS relationship. And then finally, the, the Zimbabwe story, which I think really was the twist in the tale that none of us saw coming. Do you want to say a bit about what the Zimbabwe story is and sort of how we came across it? Because it wasn't something we particularly looked for, was it? No, I mean, the way that the way that we found that story is is amazing. And the journalist who found it is a journalist called Alan Avram, who, who works with the University of Bath. And he was the one who came across it. Um, but to back up for a moment, what, what the story is, is that um, FSS, who was the private security firm that, that British American Tobacco contracted and acted as their kind of boots on the ground operation in South Africa, had started to expand their operation into Zimbabwe. And in so doing, they had they had fallen foul of the Mugabe regime and two of their contracted agents had ended up being arrested on what appeared to be trumped up charges and thrown in jail. Um, a meeting was then organized with representatives of the Mugabe regime and FSS and a donation was put on the table of up to $500,000. Um, we don't know if the money was paid, but we do know that shortly after the offer was put on the table, the agents were freed and FSS were allowed to continue operating in Zimbabwe. And the way that we came across this story is incredible because it was Alon at the University of Bath who found it. and. It was a document that someone at FSS had accidentally attached to the wrong email. So they'd meant to attach a different document about something completely unrelated, and they'd accidentally attached a debriefing document that basically laid out the entire scheme. Um, and I think, Victoria, you were you were present at the meeting when when Alan kind of revealed this to the team. Yeah, on, so um, so there was a number of us working on this. I hope you can see me all right, because everyone's gone a bit fuzzy. I'm not sure if it's my internet or am I still moving and not sounding like a robot? You can see you fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so what was wonderful about working on this was that it was uh, the Bureau of Investive Journalism, the University of Bath and Panorama, uh, BBC Panorama, and we would have regular uh, meetings and updates on how we were going, uh, how we were getting on with our research and who we'd spoken to and where we were at with things. And we, and I remember um, Alon called a sort of a special meeting. And he said, I think I found something a bit interesting. And we we were listening and he said, yeah, I found this debriefing document. And he started to tell us about it. And, you know, literally we were like, what? You know, our fate, all our sort of mouths hit the floor. It sounds remarkably like that's negotiating an enormous sum of money. Um, 
through FSS to the Mugabe regime, to ZANU-PF. Like, I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe that this was even being discussed, that this could be on the cards. It was, it was, it was a really uh, pretty, you know, it was super exciting part of the investigation. But um, yeah, it really floored all of us. We, you know, talk about needle in a haystack. It, it really did fit. Feel. that was quite an incredible find um yeah so you know when you're going through hundreds of thousands of documents and you come across something like that and it's talking about you know maybe you could consider a donation in the region of 300 to 500,000 US dollars to ZANU PF it sort of totally blows your mind you know because I'm like rifling through oh it sounds like a bribe payment of a couple of hundred you know 60,000 rand here and there and suddenly this up to 500,000 US dollars, like it was a whole different ball game. Um, yeah, and it, it was very exciting find. So um, should uh, give some credit to absent colleague, uh, Matt Chapman, who did quite a lot of work chasing down that very, very good initial find from uh, Alan, which may be a sort of email fail for the ages. Um, but Alec, I'd like to uh, bring you in oh. here. Some sort of parts of the core of this story have been quite familiar inside South Africa for some time. Uh, you know, what we've built out from and, and sort of taken on. How has it been to sort of see an international perspective and international interest on, on this tale and on sort of the way multinationals are operating in South Africa? You, you did it the right way, the way that Victoria targeted BAT, which is one of the top five listed companies on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, most, which means most South Africans have got a, are co-owners of the company when you take it down to its, to its basis, a, a basic area. Also, they're the dominant, uh, have been for many years, the dominant tobacco uh, player in this market and associated with the richest man in the country, Johan Rupert. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of interest in South Africa. but. The, the, the whole investigation here was was contaminated a great deal by a lot of fake news uh, that was published in the biggest newspaper over a period of some weeks attacking Johan uh, van Lochrenberg. I mean, literally, you had fake news on the front page of the, of the biggest newspaper saying uh, the SARS team, van Lochrenberg and his team, uh, were running a brothel. And then the next week, there'd be something else along the fake news um, uh, aspect. And I think uh, Malcolm Reese will admit that he was played really badly during this period. And of course, there's a, it's almost like the story then became contaminated and people wondered what was true and what was false. But the real attack is the, uh, or the angle that you followed was the right angle, uh, which was to go and have a look at the legitimate side of it. You know, Victoria, you, you, uh, you think this, uh, this is, and it is unusual when you're sitting in the UK, because UK companies, like American companies, if they bribe anyone anywhere in the world, you go to jail. In South Africa, uh, it's kind of um, everyday living, unfortunately. Uh, we, we do have a president who's trying to uh, sort it out now, but uh, his political party has paid very heavily for the anti-corruption campaign. There are lots of people inside who, who rely on uh, being paid, being paid handouts. For instance, just a, a small, just to understand the context of this. In South Africa, we have a system of government where 
you are where you vote for a political party rather than an individual and local elections are different but usually and so to get onto the list of the political party who go who gets sent to parliament is quite a big deal and people kill each other there's 12 15 people are murdered different participants on the list so it's a it's a very different world that we operate in uh, to to the first world however this story and it was a bit like what happened in South Africa with the Zuma era with those uh, noxious individuals the guptas who who were behind state capture it only broke when the international community took an interest it only broke when uh, bell pottinger uh, one of in fact the biggest communications company at one point in london was forced to close over over what it had done and it only broke when someone like peter hayne uh, stood up in in the house of lords and and made it an issue so what you've done is is to be celebrated here in south africa because a lot of things will happen here as just normal everyday issues but when they get exposed to a global environment and being a developing country you need money to come in you need you need uh, investment capital and when the foreign investors say well hang on a minute we're not going to touch this place or when you have a big multinational that's taking advantage of the poor governance in the country uh, and that multinational is exposed it makes a massive impact so you've done a done a wonderful piece of work and and made a huge contribution to this country and it's hitting in in the right channels that's for sure so uh, that's that's great to hear alec um i had actually been going to mention bell pottinger myself so i'm glad that you did um in that it did sort of make me wonder this this sort of scandal happening you know over a lot of the same period as, as some of bell pottinger's activities in south africa what is it with UK-based or UK-co-based multinationals sort of getting involved in some very questionable aspects of either South African politics or South African commerce, you know. So, what, you know, what's what's London's problem? Yeah, what's London's problem? Bell Pottinger, uh, at, at the time that they were, uh, they were at, in, in full cry, gave a, a legal firm in London called Schindler's, I'm sure you know all about them, £100,000 to kill business, to kill our business. Um, and essentially they saw us as, well, if we can close this business down, then everybody else who has been investigating what the Guptas were up to, and it was, it was heinous, the crimes that were being committed, uh, they would then close us down or at least scare us off, then everybody else would be scared off as well. And that's a real london kind of tactic play in developing markets where the pound is mighty and and the locals are, are very weak relatively speaking but i think that they found that uh, that south africans were equal to the task and of course there's no more bell pottinger so that kind of tells a story all of its own but a bat is still very very operative here in the country uh, there's been no apologies that i've seen it was clearly it, its hands were mucky uh, as as we've we've heard on smokescreen and all the work that you've done, the interview I, I did in London. <laughs> it seems people are freer. South Africans are freer to talk in in London with Yusuf Kaji. Made all kinds of allegations, and at the time I uh, I cut that interview down because I thought I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in court. Uh, and now I'm looking at it again and thinking, hang on, maybe Yusuf had a point. Look, Yusuf himself is uh, as as you you had in um, in smokescreen. He's He's got a lot to answer for. He's an admitted smuggler and he did all kinds of funny things. But 
what he was saying about BAT there as well um, was maybe a lot closer to the truth than than we think. Some of this stuff is just fantastic when you when exactly as 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 you uncovered with Zanu PF and that half a million dollar bribe, and it is a bribe, and it happens every day, but no one gets no one gets found out uh, in Angola at the moment. Um, the richest woman in Africa, Dos Santos's daughter, has been found out. And the more that we get, because it's only investigative journalists who do this work, uh, opening up these these avenues, uh, the better the world will be. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Very hopeful note. Um, on the topic of consequence, I've got to come back to you, Victoria, before I bring Chrissy in. Um, in that, you know, if they're if BAT is still operating and very dominant in South Africa, it's also still doing very well in the UK. And BAT's own line is that it's done nothing wrong, and all of its activities were about stopping smuggling. And one of the lines it sort of used to us to emphasize was um, that the SFO had not launched a prosecution on it, which BAT framed as a total exoneration. Um, do you think BAT was totally exonerated by a very thorough SFO investigation? Or is the picture, as I might be hinting, a little bit more complicated than that? I think it's the latter, yeah. Um, I think, yes, in our our final episode, um, which, uh, you know, Tom's done a, a marvellous job of um, putting our thoughts in some sort of Kieran structure on this, um, because the, you know, we'd sent a freedom of information request and um, into the serious fraud office and found that I think they had seven people working on this investigation, um, which does not strike me as very many. And I can pretty much imagine that um, BAT's law firm had substantial, substantially more people than that uh, working on it too. Um, we know, I mean, the problem in a lot of this is, you know, it, it kind of what Alec was just saying about, oh, maybe I should revisit what Yusuf Kaji had said. And then you have to counter that straight away with, oh, but he maybe a self-confessed smuggler and he's sort of got his hands dirty in other ways, is that a lot of these people with this substantial evidence may not be the most upstanding citizens in a court of law and maybe the SFO felt that this some of the evidence that they had seen would uh, be picked apart by some very expensive law firm employed by BAT and that they their chances of winning um, were not great. However, we know from two, at least two or more, I mean, the people that eventually did speak to us and hand over significant bits of evidence have said they, the SFO have not seen this. So we absolutely know there's evidence that they've not considered. And we think that it definitely needs to be examined and that they need to look at this evidence in the whole, as we have tried to do, and, and then make a, make a, um, make a call on it. Um, they closed it because they felt the evidential bar was not reached for a successful prosecution on the Bribery Act. But as I say, 
we feel there is more evidence that they didn't consider. So by the end of the podcast, and certainly like I am just chomping at the bit for them to reopen this or to, to you know, what's been super, really exciting is that questions have been raised in our parliament in the UK about this, questioning the SFO. Are they going to reopen this? You know, Lord Hayne um, has spoken out about this. That, you know, I feel very excited that this isn't just a piece of journalism that we've put out there, that this is being picked up, like we've handed the baton over now. We've done what we can do as journalists. And I really, really hope that now it is got to the attention of some members of parliament in the UK that they're going to continue to raise this with the SFO and that eventually this investigation will be reopened. I mean, you know, that would be the ultimate really. So it, it really did strike me, I think, particularly watching the BBC panorama where there was this little succession of people who had been willing to speak on, on record, on camera, and often had given documents. And, it, and you know, he was, they were asked, you know, did, did you speak to the SFO? No. Would you speak to the SFO? Yes. And so far as we know, there's still been nothing, which is mm. pretty extraordinary, isn't it? It is because the people that are willing to put their heads above the line on this deserve to be listened to. You know, we featured Francois van der Westhausen in our in our podcast, incredibly uh, brave person to have spoken out like he has. His life is greatly at risk for having done so, and he's had to flee South Africa. Um, but I totally commend him for being completely honest and open with us, sharing the documentation and being very, very willing to share all of that with the SFO. And I really hope they pick him up on that on that offer. And the same with Johan van Lockenberg. Um, he's gathered a lot of evidence. I, I, I mean, they, they aren't the only two. There are a lot of people and people that didn't want to speak on the podcast but would be willing to speak with the authorities. I do believe, you know, I feel like we were um there's more to the story than even we were able to broadcast um that deserves to be looked at by the authorities in the uk it is in some way a bigger ask to ask someone to broadcast to the world the allegations they're making rather than sort of in the privacy of directing the sfo isn't it it's it's just how it is and, and there's also the, the risk to life, you know, the number of conversations, incredible, open, frank conversations I had with people that then said, but you can't use a word of this. You, you cannot say, you cannot repeat anything I've told you publicly because I don't want to be looking over my shoulder for the rest of my life. And that is a very, very real threat to all of these people. And, and for me, sitting in the UK doing this investigation, saying, oh, but, you know, this is going to be really integral to our investigation if we can just get you to and it's like no you, you cannot push anybody to go on i mean you would never push anyone to go on the record but you know there's just no i, I was really uh, very early on totally respectful of anyone that would talk to me off the record and then if they went even further to say they would agree to be interviewed was you know wow that's you know i really was in awe of people that were willing to do that um so i just want to thank anyone that did speak to us so yeah, there were quite a lot of brave people on this one. Um, Chrissy, I'd like to bring you in half an hour in, hi. Um, sort of doing a tobacco investigation didn't come from nowhere for the Bureau, did it? We've, we've been looking into big tobacco for a while. Um, sort of what's behind that and what's the broader sort of interest TBIJ has in, in big tobacco? Yeah, well, I think you know, you have to have been living under a rock to not realise that, you know, cigarettes, tobacco, nicotine, 
all of these products are still massively uh, responsible for, you know, huge amounts of illness, death, disability around the world. And I think, you know, in, in some countries, you can look at the smoking stats in Britain and see that, you know, in the 60s, half of every, everybody smoked. So one in one in two people walking down the street would be smoking. And today, that's much lower in the kind of mid-teens. Um, but, you know, that's not the case around the world. And also, there's a lot of questions around who is smoking and why. And also, smoking now can encompass a vast majority of things. It's not just tobacco. You know, you think about these companies and they you go onto their websites or you'll look on their social media and they'll tell you, oh, look, we're not interested in getting um, new people to smoke. We're not looking after our interest in getting young people hooked. What we're really trying to do is help adult smokers get off of tobacco. We don't want people to smoke cigarettes anymore. And you're like, that's so great. And then you're like, hang on, your business is selling tobacco to people. So I think what's very interesting um, is like what what is behind this idea that big tobacco are kind of writing their, themselves out of a job because obviously they're not these are huge businesses with massive turnovers they're operating in all parts of the world particularly where labor is cheap perhaps regulation is more friendly towards them perhaps where there's a willing market of people where you can still buy a single cigarette or you might advertise tobacco products outside of schools so I think partly what we're interested in and have been interested in and continue to be interested in is what is the real future for big tobacco. Now, recently, you know, this year we see one of the big companies buying, acquiring a pharmaceutical company, especially one that makes inhalers. And you're like, oh, hang on, this is like the circle of life. You know, you create products that cause massive illness and death. And then you also happen to own the company that provides the medical devices to treat them. And that's very interesting. Um, there's also, you know, lots of next generation products, so things like vapes, um, heated tobacco. We see companies moving in a similar way, actually, to I think um, how the big uh, breweries and the big alcohol companies have bought up lots of craft beer producers. You see these big tobacco companies now moving into sectors such as tobacco, uh, such as cannabis and also non-tobacco based products. So maybe they contain nicotine, maybe they don't even contain nicotine, things like um, these vapes and e-cigarettes there's loads of flavors there's loads of different devices you can get mods you can make them how you want them it's a massive massive market so partly what we're interested in is okay maybe we take on face value which we never would uh, the idea that you're trying to move out of combustible cigarettes so what about these next generation products what about these pharma acquisitions what about cannabis what are you doing with these products are they really to help adult smokers stop smoking and then what also, we're interested in things around obviously regulation and government involvement. So everything from advertising to tax incentives for these products and these companies. We're also wondering about if you are advertising these products to existing adult smokers, uh, then why, you know, are they appearing outside schools or why are you so invested in TikTok or why are you sponsoring this event for young people in Spain or Italy? Um, it makes us sound very suspicious. And to be honest, we are. So I think it's something we're very interested in looking into. And we're also interested in the kind of legacy of these companies in terms of their past. So many, many tobacco companies obviously have roots in slavery and and across the world um, kind of indentured labour. So I think we're very interested in that legacy and also how it exists today and how those perhaps um, discriminatory um, roots are really still kind of expressed today. So we're interested in kind of makeup of these companies and who's doing the work and also what is a kind of um, background and characteristics of the people who tend to be most affected negatively by these products? 
Um, and also, as as always, we are you know keeping an eye on what's happening closer to home. So we've just published a recent investigation about um, the cigarette, the menthol cigarette ban in the EU, which is now 18 months in. We still can't say for certain what a menthol cigarette is. So it's actually a little bit farcical. If you look closely at, at the uh, report, um, there's been a big kind of cache of documents published by Public Health England, and they are investigating uh, what constitutes menthol cigarettes. So you're not, it's not a ban on any amount of menthol in cigarettes, but it's a ban on a characterizing flavor. And to work this out, the EU has employed a panel of human sniffers um, as part of the, the way of judging. Uh, great. I can't wait to see how that works. Um, and I think what we have found um, is that 18 months on, on into this ban, you still can't say for sure. Uh, naughty, don't sell that product. It's got too much menthol in it. And actually, the big tobacco companies are being really helpful to the authorities because they're actually pointing out each other's products that may be, uh, you know, exploiting loopholes in that ban. So um, that's been a very interesting investigation. And I think what, what it shows us is, um, you know, every... Uh, challenge is an opportunity to big tobacco um, and I think we're not going to stop looking and we are very interested in the new stuff they're bringing out, their current products and their history. So basically the holistic approach to understanding and as always we're very open to tips and any kind of suggestions for things to investigate and I think what's been lovely about Smokescreen actually is traditionally uh, in kind of mainly written reporting and investigations we wouldn't have been able to get that kind of real intimate, um, you know, in your ears, you're listening and it's happening around you thing that podcasts and audio really give you. And that's as someone slightly to the outside of the podcast. It's been a real privilege to watch that unravel and become a thing that the Bureau's done. And obviously without people like Tom and, you know, the other companies involved, it would have been impossible. Um, and I think what that shows us is, you know, there's lots to uncover that's new and we're all always about what's new, what hasn't been told before give us everything, oh my goodness. Going back and looking, like Alex said, in a different way and an existing kind of issue, bringing it to a new audience or bringing out different aspects of it or from a different angle and really prioritizing the narrative, the human, the characters, the plot. You know, we can actually, as, as journalists, sometimes do ourselves a disservice and be like, we're very careful about what we say. We give rights to reply, we reflect the truth. We don't go beyond what we know. But sometimes I think it can leave us a little bit, you know, less, you know, less exciting and grabby and compelling as we might want to be. Some of us push, but some, you know, <clears> it's, <throat> and I think with audio, <laughs> James is jumping in. Stop talking with the editor. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, just uh, thought I would say, I, you know, I think uh, Tom and the team at Novel have done a, a great job helping humanize the story. and. Uh, also, you know, the team at Audi have been fantastic, in, both in terms of we literally couldn't have done it without their support, but also promoting and putting it out and trying to make sure some people hear the story. But sort of there's one issue for the Bureau that I'm just going to ask you to touch on quickly, Chrissy, before I have a nice final sting of a question for Tom as we get to the close. But it's tricky for something like the Bureau that wants to make change with its journalism but also gets funding from outside bodies to do it and several tobacco companies have sort of pointed out to us um, that our funding is from Vital Strategies which also funds anti-smoking campaign groups and is eventually sort of funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg himself is very much an anti-smoking, anti-vaping advocate 
how much do you sort of find in your experience vital tell us what to investigate or what our line is and where do you think we draw the line in being journalists and not campaigners yeah i mean it's a really good question and you know the key to this is transparency and yeah, I would just say whatever journalism you're doing, whatever media you're making, unless you're extremely lucky to be patronised by some rich relative, um, you're always going to have to be funded by somewhere and someone. And that person is always going to have their biases, their interests, their positions like any other humans. Um, you know, but working at the Bureau and being around such kind of principal journalists and um, other staff there, we, you know, nobody would work in the situation where we were being told what to do. I mean, it's hard enough managing people in the Bureau, to be honest. You're not going to be able to tell them what to write either. Um, just a joke, love my team. Um, so I think, it, you know, Vital Strategies fund us and we're very grateful for that support among many other funders of the Bureau's wider work. Um, you know, I've never once been told what to investigate, what not to investigate. Um, you know, never been pointed at something. Occasionally we get an invitation to a press conferences open to all other media or we get you know there's an event that you know we probably knew about already because we're scanning the horizon for stuff like that but there's absolutely no editorial involvement at all um and I think the the line around kind of where do we draw the line is very interesting so we actually have um on our team we're very lucky to have an in inbuilt I was gonna say it makes them sound like a dishwasher um an impact producer who is embedded that's what I meant embedded within the team so this impact producer will work with the reporters from the start of an investigation all the way through and beyond actually when us editorial guys are like we've published it it's finished although it never really is finished um our impact producer will think about who are the right audiences so we we'll work together at the start and be like who needs to hear this who you know what will speak to them which audiences um do we want which communities are affected where are the people that hold the power and the influence if we want to help change happen what is the right medium and the right audience and the right time and the right format to do this in? Now, that doesn't say that our impact producers sat there saying, do this story, do your reporting like this. You know, again, try telling a journalist to do their job in a way they don't want to do it. Um, but what it does mean is that we are very aware from the start that we're not doing journalism for like the lulls or for the awards or for the recognition of our peers, even though all of those things are nice. We're not doing it to satisfy funders, although it's important that we obviously spend the money in the way you know we say we will. We're doing it to really, and this is going to sound very cheesy, but not only to kind of shed light, not heat on the kind of wrongdoing in the world, and to try and you know give new life or new kind of attention to things that need attention. We're also trying to do things that can lead to positive change in the world. And in the global health team, obviously we've been very corona focused, but tobacco has always been a separate strand. And I think, you know, it will be because it's just one of these massive health crises. It's a preventable, you know, cancers, heart disease, all of the things that come with smoking are preventable. You know, people are choosing to do this, albeit, you know, when you're addicted, it can be very hard to stop. You know, companies aren't, in my opinion, doing as much as they can to help people not be addicted. And really, they've got to kind of show the world that if they're serious about stopping cigarettes being such a fun and easy and enjoyable thing to do, then, you know, they need to step up the mark and do that. So everything we do ultimately is about uncovering the truth and holding power to account. But also, you know, we're gonna do that in a way that hopefully has a positive impact in the world. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Just so my mum can say, well done, no. <laughs> Although, you know, we'd love to hear that anytime. But no, it sure. really is. 
on tobacco when you look at it against coronavirus since the start of the coronavirus pandemic tobacco's killed roughly 14 million people across the world which is a heck of a lot more people than coronavirus has killed and quite rightly coronavirus has topped headlines around the world we've just got so desensitized to the impact of big tobacco it's it's really shocking um I just feel like, uh, just quickly before we finish, as we're wrapping up, uh, I wanted to bring Tom in one more time because uh, you cannot do a big podcast like this making some very serious allegations against some quite you know, prominent individuals and companies without spending a lot of time dealing with the Bureau's brilliant lawyer, Stephen Shotless. Um, what is it like trying to legal something as complex uh and in some ways high risk as this tom yeah it's been an, it's been a difficult process and i mean stephen has been amazing to work with and he has offered some very very sage advice um all the way through um i think what was particularly challenging with this is that this is a story that that changes depending on who's telling it um and there is a lot of you know we have the documents and a very strong evidence base that allows us to be, you know, objective about what happened. But this is a story that also um, was experienced subjectively by a lot of people. Um, and in podcasts, you've got a very, very long time for people to talk kind of candidly, but also informally about their experiences. And so somebody can say something that in the moment you're like, wow, that's such a zinger. It's definitely going to make it in. And then you take it to the lawyer and they go, there's no way that you can say that. Um, so I think that that involved a lot of back and forth where, where, you know, having to accept, okay, actually, yeah, that wasn't quite right. We can't quite say it in that way, but we're going to have to adapt it. And then other moments of sort of arguing back and saying, well, actually, I think here, if you understand in the context in which this person is saying this thing, what they're saying makes sense. And I think we can, we can justify it on this basis. Um, but it was definitely it was definitely a process. So I just want to say big up to the fact checkers because yeah. I know that, I mean everything we we fact check at the bureau and we think we're pretty good at it. But I think this was next level, um, you know, fact check. And like you say, when facts kind of change from person to person, that adds a little frisson of oh my goodness. So yeah, I think the whole team has done. Um, like I say, a brilliant job and it has been a massive amount of work and I think from, like I said, a slightly outsider's perspective, totally worth it, so. Uh, let's let's give our fact checker a name shout out because uh, it's uh, Alice Millican who's uh, fact checks uh, pretty much every word you say, Victoria, or an interviewee say in that uh, podcast, right down to if we call a building dilapidated we have to show Alice a picture of that building. <laughs> Sorry, my favourite one was it's 12 o'clock lunchtime? Because you called that lunchtime. I, I think it's lunchtime. <laughs> Sorry. She's brilliant. I, Love Alice and I Frankie. So uh, Chrissy regards 12 o'clock to be lunchtime. Um, but on that very important note, uh, I'm going to thank... Oh, Alec looks like he wants to say something. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a question here that's come through from Johan van Lochrenberg. Uh, can I read it? And would you guys like to answer it? It says, bribery crime sorry, bribery or corruption as a crime, as well as money laundering as a crime, aren't bound by jurisdictional restrictions. I understand the focus and hope placed on the SFO, 
but why are none of you asking questions about what other law enforcement agencies and regulators in the UK, Zimbabwe and South Africa are doing, or rather not doing? They have, as a fact, better access and more powers to access evidence and witnesses. And I know they have more evidence than the podcast demonstrated. Why the apathy? Is BAT that powerful and untouchable? And what about the role of law firms and audit firms, for example, Norton Rose Fulbright and KPMG in this saga? I thought I had to bring that up because he's written it there. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's a very good set of questions. I, it looks like Victoria would like to jump in too, but I'll, I'll sort of say, I know that we have, as part of our impact work, been trying to reach out to a few other international investigatory agencies, not actually just in those areas. Um, and we actually have a piece coming somewhat on uh, actually quite SFO focused because we are a London based organization and that's where we have the best connections and sway. But no, I think these are very good questions to ask, but I do think um, Johan slightly answered his own question as well, where he talks about BAT's sway. But uh, Victoria looks like she wanted to jump in there. No, I was just going to say that it speaks to the like the huge frustration that we've all had through this. Um, Norton Rose Fulbright um, had had published uh, an investigative you know, report. They'd done a preliminary report into BAT's activities in South Africa back in 2016-17, I think it was, and it's never been made public. Um, I mean, it's deeply frustrating. If they investigated and found no evidence of wrongdoing. Why Why not make that public? You think they'd be very proud to put that out there. Um, you know, their defense is it's, it's a private company done in a private capacity. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I spent a, a lot of time trying to figure out a way to force that into the into the light and, you know, with limited, obviously no success. And there was an investigation um, by the police started in the UK, but again, closed. You know, it, a lot just comes down to things like that unsigned affidavit, Belinda not going through with giving, talking to the authorities, uh, and just, a, 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 you know, we spoke to the to some of the people that were on that initial police investigation, and it was like, and they were, you know, casting their mind back, oh, I think it just petered out. And, you know, we can only go so far. And I think that the way that we've kept our focus on the SFO, because they are the UK authority responsible for prosecutions that come under the Bribery Act. And, you know, that, you know that's been our focus, but, but absolutely valid question by JVL. And sadly, I can't give a better answer than that, but just, yeah, it's not over. So, no, well, we will see and hope that more happens. Um, but I will wrap us up here. I will say if you haven't listened to the podcast, please do. Uh, it is a smokescreen uh, and it is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you have listened to it and enjoyed it, please do leave a five star review on the Apple Store. It really helps more people to find it and see it. And uh, we currently have a, a very good rating on the UK store in particular. So thank you for that. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Alec, Victoria, Tom and Chrissy for joining us. Uh, and everyone who's uh, listened to this, thank you very much for joining us. If you've been enjoying Smokescreen, please don't forget to like, comment and share this podcast. Apparently it helps other people hear about it.